0: Hello, it's me, the ukulele teacher, a.k.a. John Atkins, and welcome to this, my brand new podcast, Ukulele Tales. Over the last six months or so, I've been collecting interviews with some of the top ukulele players and personalities in the world, and I'm really proud and excited to be sharing them with you on this brand new podcast. Zoom has been absolutely fantastic for bringing people together over the last couple of years, but this podcast is all about in-person interviews, Every single person that I've spoken to has been a face-to-face interview where I've had the chance to ask all sorts of questions up close and personal. I'm really excited to be launching this project, and also I can't wait for you guys to be a part of it as well. So stay tuned for ways that you can help support this podcast, hear plenty of bonus content, and also get involved in it. Uh, This podcast is all about telling tales. Tall Tales, Small Tales, Tales of Kings and Queens, Tales of the Unexpected, Tales of Joy, Tales of Woe, but more than that, tales about our favourite four-stringed friend, the ukulele. Over the next few months, I'll be sharing my conversations with stars from Hawaii, like Jake Shimabukuru and Andrew Molina, um, American uke personalities like Bernadette Teachers Music and Victoria Vox, Grammy Award-winning South African bass ukulele player Bagheete Kumalo, who played on Paul Simon's classic Graceland album, and of course, top stars from the UK, including Opera Laley, Plastic Jesus, and hopefully one or two members of the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain. Not only that, but I'll also be talking to some of the unsung heroes of the ukulele world, such as Marlin, uh, the head of the Ukulele Kids Club, a charity that provides ukuleles for sick children. All of these people have their own tales to tell, and I think you're going to love getting to know a bit more about some of these incredible musicians and characters. I'll also take you behind the scenes and talk about some of the events that I performed at or attended, from the glitz and glamour of the Los Angeles International Ukulele Festival and the Grand Northern Ukulele Festival to the Box Ukulele Festival, uh, which takes place in a small village in rural England that has a population of less than 400 people. Everyone has a tale to tell, and I've been overwhelmed, by the generosity of people who've given up their time to be interviewed by me, and I know that you're going to love it too. Also, I want to hear from you. Tell me your ukulele tales. You can tweet me, Instagram me, Facebook me, or even send me a good old-fashioned email to teacher at grabyouryuk.com and tell me your stories of strumming. I'll be setting up some topics in the coming weeks and months that I'd love to hear from you on. But for now, I'd just love to hear which interviews you're looking forward to listening to and how and why you got started on the ukulele. I'll read out some of the contributions next week. And if you send me a voice memo, I might even play it. Anyway, what better way to kick this whole thing off than with an interview with one of the top ukulele players and teachers in the world today, James Hill. I caught up with James at NAM, and we spoke for a long time about all kinds of topics, including some of his teaching methods, how he survived lockdown, writing music, learning music at a young age, the value of social media as a teaching platform and being described as the Wayne Gretzky of the ukulele and what that means for any non-sporty or non-Canadian people such as myself. James was really generous with his time, especially as he's in the middle of writing and recording his really fascinating new album, You Heads, which we talk about in some depth later in the interview. There's also some great bonus content exclusively for my Patreon supporters, where James tells the tale of how he put together and practiced his now famous Billy Jean cover. Uh, it's a tale which spans nearly 10 years. It has to be heard to be believed. I'll be back in a bit to tell you more about how you can support and be a part of this podcast but for now here's part one of me and James Hill
1: you never know what you're going to
0: yeah exactly right (laughs) You know, but then, you know, those podcasts where they sort of start... Um, before they start? Before they start, yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then, it's like, in 20 minutes, they're like, hey, have we started? I'm like, yeah, you, you got it, pal. <laughs> we've been going for 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And where have you come from today? We're at Nam. Where have you come from to be here?
1: Hmm, I came from home in Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada.
0: Yeah. And you're from Canada um, originally, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: I started uh, on the west coast, where that's where I learned the ukulele and... Uh, in Canada, uh, this is more of an answer probably than you wanted for that very simple
0: question. No, not at all. Let's, let's keep it going. You know?
1: <laughs> in Canada in the, in the 60s, there was this uh, wonderful music educator uh, named Chalmers Doan, who is still alive and well and lives in Nova Scotia, which is on the East Coast. Um, and his program spread all the way across the, can- uh, across the country to um, the West Coast, where I was born. And I grew up playing in that program and learning in that way. And then um, when I got older, I, I decided to sort of go back to the source of that ukulele program. And that's one of the main reasons that I moved across the country to Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia where I live right, now. And yeah. now, now I live 15 minutes from his house. He's my mentor and we play pool every Friday. And, you know, I've really gone back to the source of where that, that ukulele uh, uh, knowledge sprang from.
0: And how old are you when you started? Is it like 12 or something? I think I remember. Oh, it's
1: younger than that. I mean, the, the ideal age for that program is about eight.
0: Eight? Yeah. Wow, and did you have any background before uh, in other instruments before you started the ukulele, like the piano or anything? I
1: did. I, my parents had me playing uh, the violin in the Suzuki program locally when I was, you know, three. Uh, started piano when I was about six, um, and so I grew up. Um, I didn't really take to the piano, and it's only just recently that I've really started going back to the piano and, and enjoying it. Um, but I just grew up playing, uh, um, you know, hockey, soccer and ukulele and fiddle, you know, those those are sort of my things that I did.
0: Yeah, yeah, hockey is a, a Canadian thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: it's sort of the Canadian thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, I saw you were referred to as the Wayne Gretzky of the ukulele, <laughs> but I was, and I was going to say that to you, and then I thought mm. I'm not sure I totally understand that
1: reference enough to <laughs> to use it with you, in case it's not the compliment that I think it might be. But... No, that's funny you should say that. Very, very uh, sort of sensitive of you to to think of it that way. But no, being called the Wayne Gretzky of anything uh, is a compliment. You know, he's he's the great one. I mean, he's he's a Canadian icon. Every kid grows up pretending that they're Wayne Gretzky in the driveway with the, the hockey stick. So, but there is a bit of a story to that quote, which is that um, that was the, the first press quote that I ever got, you know, when I started playing ukulele sort of professionally. I released my first solo album, which uh, was 20 years ago. Uh, and I recorded that album in my dorm room at university. and. It just so happened that a very popular radio show called The Vinyl Cafe, which is on national radio, um, decided at that point that they were going to adopt the ukulele as the official instrument of their very popular nationally syndicated show. This was a total coincidence, and they were um, <clears throat> they were putting out calls for ukulele music, and they wanted to hear from Canadians who played ukulele and went on. Because the reason they adopted it is because the motto of the show was, we may not be big, but we're small. And so when Stuart McLean, who was the, <clears throat> the, the host of the show, um, found out about the ukulele, he thought that really embodied the the spirit of, we may not be big, but we're small. Right, yeah. Right. So he had me out um, to play on the show. He, he put my album on the air. The first track on that album of me just you know sitting there playing in my dorm room, the first track was Flight of the Bumblebee. And nobody had really heard ukulele playing like that before. And so he kind of jumped on it and, uh, and um, really championed it and supported it. And uh, that was, I guess, that was my big break. That was my start to, to, to come right out of school, to make an, a little album in your room and then to have somebody champion it on that national level, I mean, I, I was just the right person at the right place at the right time. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, that's sort of how I feel about um, what happened to me with my mm. channel. Mm. Like, Obviously, today there's dozens of people playing or teaching the ukulele on YouTube. But I think just at the time when I started, I was just right place, right time. And um, there was just one other guy, I think. Do you remember Ukulele Mike? Yeah. Sort of like the old Canadian, I think, was he Canadian as well, actually?
1: Well, there are there two ukulele mics that I'm aware of. <laughs>
0: That's true, actually. I think so, and I think I get them confused because one of them keeps saying, I'm not the dead one or something, right? Because right. this guy died, but he was yes. just an old fisherman on a boat who posted yeah. ukulele videos. And I think it was just sort of me and him at the beginning yeah. and maybe Cynthia Lynn as well. Mm. And then now there's sort of dozens, but I think... Because- Part of my notoriety, if I have any, is because I was just do. one of. Well, oh, thank you, just because <laughs> I was just one of the first people to to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, but, there's there's you know I, I guess they call it first move first mover advantage, right? I mean, yeah. There there is something special about just getting in there early. Yes. Yeah. I certainly did that. <laughs>
0: getting in there early, yeah, and just not giving up as well. <laughs> that,
1: those are the two ingredients, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Get in early. Yeah. You know, jump in the pool early and and don't stop swimming.
0: Just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No matter how like painful it might become after so many years but yeah that's right you
1: know i I feel like you know i i I got into it um i I was sort of pulled into it i mean i i I didn't really uh set out to become an ukulele player i was also just born into a place where the ukulele was used in the classroom i mean uh, it was happenstance i mean that they Put an ukulele in my hands when I was in fourth grade. And same with all the other kids in my class. It was, it was just another subject at yeah. school. This, this is what's so remarkable about the Canadian ukulele program. Uh, especially at the time, because this is way before the resurgence of the ukulele. We're talking the 80s, you mm-hmm. know, uh, when you could not buy an ukulele at a, at a music store. Um, and it was, you know, 15 years before what we would call the third wave, you know. And here was, you know, here were these Canadian uh, school programs putting ukuleles in the hands of kids and, and, and shepherding them along on their musical journey. The idea, of course, with these programs was that the kids would learn uh, fundamental musical skills that they could transfer to other instruments. This is so important to understand because it, it, it sh- it's a different philosophy than a lot of the ukulele programs that you see now. Um, where the ukulele programs that you often find in schools now are more about how it feels than about how it sounds you know it's more about an outlet for kids, it's more about having some creativity, um, getting some, um, uh, some time where they're they're engaged in, in music making which is all good but <clears throat> it, <clears throat> the Canadian program was unique in the sense that it was a springboard to other instruments and the reason that's unique is because the teachers had to make sure that the students not only learned how to play the ukulele in and of itself, they also learned skills that they could transfer. So what are those skills? Well, note reading, uh, ear training, music theory, arranging, improvisation, all the things that do not belong to the ukulele, but that can be transferred to the piano or to the trombone or to the flute. So that made the Canadian program unique and and very powerful uh, as a way of springboarding kids into other musical um, ventures wow
0: that's fascinating uh that's really interesting to hear because yeah we went around my son he's going to be going to school next year hopefully and um they're sort of when we saw their music room they had a load of ukuleles and i was kind of thought oh, that's great that they're teaching that but you're right i think in england it is much more about sort of learning cf and g and having a little strum along and a little outlet, a creative outlet, which I think is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. But I don't think they're going to be learning sort of, you know, music theory to any level at all, probably.
1: Likely not. And I I think... I will give credit where it's due because I think there are some teachers out there in in the UK and other places who are doing programs like that. I mean, I I know that because I work with some of them. Um, Many of them have come through my uh, Jehui teacher certification program and of course that, as you can imagine, has all of these, you know, um, values kind of baked into it of um, music literacy and using the ukulele as a vehicle for music fun and music literacy. but I think uh, these days it's very much up to the individual teacher. So you find very patchy kind of uh, um, consistency in terms of what people are doing with their ukulele programs. Uh, you don't find that in sort of like math or science class or no, that's English true English class. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's a pretty standard like, well, this is what we expect yeah. from that class. Well, it's ukulele, a curriculum. Yeah. yeah, ukulele. It's sort of like you know, you, you sort of teacher to teacher, uh, you'll get huge variation in terms of. How exactly they're 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 using the instrument?
0: Talking of teaching, um, I guess you were saying you got your break. Like you started as a, a musician. You were well, obviously you're a musician. I mean, as a performer, a composer. But is, do you do more teaching now? Is that what you're most interested in doing, or are you still into songwriting?
1: That's a it's a great question. I mean, the, the, basically the answer is yes and yes. I, I I've always seen you know my musical life in sort of two hemispheres in a sense. One is the educational side and one is the artistic side. And uh, my parents were both teachers in uh, the school system. So I I came by it honestly, you know, always around educators and and hearing conversations about education. And uh, I have a genuine interest in music education. I wrote my first um, actually guitar method book by hand, uh, pen and paper, when I was 15 years old. Wow. Because I, at that time, my family had moved to New Zealand um, for a year, <clears throat> which is where my parents are from. We moved there as a family just to um, experience the culture and to, and to make friends and visit family. And during that year, somebody asked at my school that I was going to if I could give them guitar lessons. And I thought, well, I, I do have a guitar. I, I, I could probably figure it out. And so I sat down and wrote my first method book. Uh, You know, I've obviously had an interest in education for a long time that's gone hand in hand with my other musical activities. So I don't, here's the thing, (laughs) I used to see those as two separate worlds. I used to see one as sort of one mountain to climb and the other is another mountain to climb. So on, you know, on my left hand side here, I might have this big Mount Fuji, which is the artistic mountain. Somehow, somehow I have to write good songs and... And, and get them distributed, and, and promote them, and, and get gigs, and go out there and make fans. You know that that's a big mountain to climb. You know, and then on the right hand side over here, I've got this huge other Mount Fuji, which, or you know, maybe this is Mount Everest over here, and this is the educational mountain. You know, I have to become a great teacher. I have to understand the psychology and uh, and, and the sort of politics of the classroom, and come up with interesting and original uh, pedagogical approaches, and and publish and Get my books out there, and then train people how to use them. And oh my goodness, that's a that's a huge climb.
0: Yeah, it's a lot uh, of work, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: either one of those, you know, Mount Fuji or Mount Everest, either one of those is a life's work. And so I would stand back from that sometimes and just think, it's totally overwhelming. I I can't climb to the top of even one of those. I mean, <laughs> my best case scenario is maybe that I climb halfway up both, mm-hmm. and then I don't get a view from either one. I never get to the summit of anything, right? So I was sort of held back by this notion that I couldn't get to the top of either one of those piles. And um, I th- and, then, <laughs> and then I just changed the way that I was thinking about it. I don't remember when this happened, maybe two or three years ago, before, before the pandemic hit. I just had this sort of epiphany one day, and I thought, well, what if I just take the same information and just think about it differently instead of thinking about it as sort of two mountainous tasks that I'll never you know get to the summit of why don't I just think about it as like two legs <laughs> of a giant sort of lumbering creature you know one leg is education and one leg is artistry and sometimes I'm pushing one forward and sometimes I'm pushing the other one forward and the two of them combine to sort of lumber my career forward, and and you know what, that, although it's the same information, that image helped me to get out from under the sort of, um, the the feeling that I could never accomplish it, and now I sort of see education and artistry as just sort of moving forward, Um, some years I might focus more on education, some years I might focus more on my songs and my songwriting and my touring, but I don't... I don't feel like I'm giving up on any uh, on either one of them anymore. They just move forward together.
0: But that being said, it's been a long time since your last uh album, right? Like I think nearly 10 years, 8 or 9 years since then.
1: I've kind of lost track because I had my son was born and then, you know, life happened. Yeah, for so for I think it was might have been 20 uh, 2015 was my last solo album. Yeah. I mean, since then I've done I did a Live in studio album with my wife. I produced my wife's latest album. Yeah, um, we've just uh, last year we finished a Christmas record. You know, I've been writing a lot of songs, and um, there's been a lot of activity, just not a lot of releases. Right. Which is kind of interesting. But in that interim time, you know, where I can always you know, go back to my analogy, you know, so the artistry leg hasn't been that active. The educational leg has been incredibly active and made a huge leap forward with eucatropolis.com, um, yeah. which is really my way of bringing all of my educational activities together into one place. And now that that's kind of going, and it's been very successful and, and, and I've got a team with me who are helping me to keep that thing going, now, just in the past few months, I've been able to turn back to um, my you know my artistic projects. And that's where you kids, you know, really right, comes in. Yeah.
0: So for me, that was really interesting how James explains his twin prong approach to teaching and artistry, how he considers himself to be both a teacher and a musician. But that sometimes means putting one thing to one side for a while, even sometimes for several years. I've been doing my YouTube ukulele tutorials now for a long time, but speaking to James really highlighted that it might be time for me to start branching out a bit more seriously into my other areas of interest, and that made me really decide to focus on this podcast for a while now, even if that means that my uke lessons maybe have to take a back seat for a bit. Um, Anyway, in the next section of the interview, we'll talk about uke heads, James's exciting new project that he's working on and is exciting and, dare I say, unique way of funding it. I have to admit, I had no real idea of what NFTs really were before I spoke to James. And believe me, I tried reading really up on it, but it just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. But James has found a way of using this new technology to help fund and, in fact, help produce his new album. And it's a really interesting chat about how that project is going to work. Talking of funding, one of the ways that you can help fund this podcast is by signing up to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash teacher. I'm guessing most of you know what Patreon is by now, but just in case you don't, it's basically a way that you can help support the creators and the artists and projects that you love, and in return, you get a little something back from them. So by signing up to the podcast tiers on my Patreon, you can get all kinds of things, including exclusive bonus materials from my interviews, Behind the scenes content from various ukulele festivals and events that I attend, um, a chance to ask questions to some of my future guests, a chance to send in contributions to the show, and also a chance to get your name read out in the episodes. As I mentioned earlier, there's a really cool exclusive clip just to my patrons from this very episode where James talks about his famous Billy Jean video, how he came up with the idea, how he arranged it, and how it took him nearly 10 years to get the whole thing just right. Producing this podcast is a real leap of faith for me and I can't do it without your help. So if this uh, podcast is a project that you'd like to see me continue with, then please consider signing up and supporting me on Patreon because I've got some great ideas for the show and I'd really love to see them come to fruition. Anyway, talking of funding ideas, let's get back to James as we talk about his amazing idea for funding his new ukulele album, Kids. yeah it seems like a good time to jump into that because you are uh in the process of well, i was going to say publishing a new album but actually you haven't really started to write it yet have you it's it's a whole new project that you're about to jump into
1: well just to be clear i have written it okay yeah so i've written 10 songs and uh i've recorded demos of all 10 songs so that so that people can hear what i mean you know you have to show people. You can't just tell people. Uh, so when I say I've I've written these ten songs, I want people to hear them and get excited about them. But what is different about this album is that it's a process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, traditionally, uh, an artist will toil away on, on their album in the studio, and then um, at a certain point, just release it. You know, and what tends to happen is that that gets about. Five minutes of publicity, and then poof, it just sort of disappears, yeah <laughs> over the edge, and we and that's it. it's just in the big pile of albums that are out there, and that's happened to me many times, and I just felt that you know what am, what am I doing wrong here what I, I, whenever I put something out, it's sort of uh you think it's gonna sail away and have this life and it and it tends to just sort of you know um fall over and um I thought maybe. It's just um, not engaging enough. Maybe I'm not involving my community enough. What if I made an album, and this goes back to a bit of advice that I got from a friend years ago, Tony Coleman. Um, What if I made an album that was written for everyone to play on? Well, that would change the landscape. And so that's what I've done. I've written these 10 songs with the idea that my fans will play on the songs with me. Um, and that's exactly what New Kids is going to be.
0: And the way you're funding it is... Well, let me get... Actually, I'll come back to how you're funding it in a second because that's super interesting. I really want to talk about that. But just when you said about your fans are going to play on it with you, uh, are we talking remotely? They're going to sort of record at home and send you the tracks, or they're not going to be sort of flying out to canada or anything
1: right? no no they they are going to record remotely i mean i'd love to I'll like rent an island and, It'd be amazing yeah. right <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but you know when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people playing together yeah it's gonna it's it's remote at this point
0: yeah but does that pose any problems with um people having different sort of setups and equipment you know recording quality and stuff completely yeah okay. it,
1: it's going to be an absolute uh, uh mash yeah uh, i i feel confident that i can pull it together uh, i think it's a it's uh, it's a challenge for sure, but I, I, I know we can make it work.
0: Great. Well, good luck. Well, let's talk about it then. So I'm going to say three letters, <laughs> NFT. Right. I don't totally understand what that means, and I had very unusual ideas about it, but I had a look at your UK's page, and that's how you're funding this album. Now, I have to say, I've read a lot of things where it's maybe a lot of people think it's not necessarily the most... Um, I don't know on the up and up but you you've sort of explained it in a really good way and that there's actually tangible benefits people aren't just buying a picture of you know a monkey with a sailor's cap on or whatever they're actually getting things for it so can you just explain i guess before i go off on a weird tangent <laughs> what what an nft is and how you're using it to fund your album
1: well nfts there's no question are misunderstood and incredibly overhyped um because they're new and because we don't quite understand what they are or what they're fully capable of, um, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and, and, and mystery around them. But really, what NFTs are, and if, if you haven't you know, heard it before, it stands for non-fungible token, which is terrible branding. You know, I, I wish they'd called it something else, but they didn't. Uh, and NFT has just caught on as the word for these things that are basically just digital tickets. I mean, when you say it that way, it just kind of pulls all the air out of the room. He was like, oh, it's just a ticket. i was <laughs> like, oh, it's just kind of a fancy ticket with an image on it. Oh, okay. Well, that actually doesn't sound that weird. You know, so basically you buy one of these tickets and in exchange, uh, you, you give me some money and I give you the ticket. This is very common. We all can relate to that. And when you redeem the ticket, you get to play on the album. So where's the mystery? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right.
0: When you put it like that, exactly. When you put it like that, that's exactly, uh, that sort of opened my eyes as well. I'm like, all oh, right, I get it. You're selling something right. for money, in exchange for money. Right. Well, now,
1: now the confusion comes because when they first came out and they first really hit the press, the press was having a field day with the fact of, of how absurd it seemed because these little tickets didn't actually get you anything. Now that is weird. Mm. Like, like, who would go to the Ticketmaster or whatever it is, and who would pay you know a hundred bucks to get a ticket to nowhere? (laughs) I mean, that really is absurd. Uh, And and that describes a lot of the early um, NFT projects. They were they were experimental. uh, They were finding their way. They were looking for 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 new ways to create and share value. You know, I, I I give them a pass because I think it's it's I think it's Tra- potentially transformative uh, technology. And so what if the early projects are a little bit you know, like very uh, overhyped and misunderstood? That doesn't bother me. You know, uh, what I'm interested in is how we can now use that in a little bit more meaningful way uh, and at a small scale. I mean, I'm talking about a, a very ukulele sized NFT project. You know, these, these uh, NFT projects tend to be in the thousands of, of, of Items, You know, 10,000 is usually the, the, the starting number for these things. You know, I've, I've created less than 2,000 um, tickets for this experience, and um, fans are buying them, and the, the utility that they get for owning one is that they get this experience, this musical experience, of collaborating with me, uh, having monthly workshops with me, so they know the parts, uh, they get access to our own workspace where they get to meet and hang out with other uke heads from around the world Um, they get basically it's a ticket to become part of a community and that community has a purpose and that purpose is to create this album and when the album is finished we're all very proud of what we've done we tell the world about it and they've got their name in the credits and they show their son their daughter their spouse their their grandkids it's a real um, tangible um, benefit for picking up this ticket supporting the album and being part of the community you know, kind of when you put it that way, I, it, I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of takes the mystery out of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's no different to uh, GoFundMe or any other kind of crowdfunding thing when you, when you explain it like that. Right. Now, it, it, a it, is,
1: it is a little bit different. Okay. Uh, you're right. Because so the question then is, well, why didn't you just do, do this as a Kickstarter? <clears throat> and, the, <clears throat> and, the, and the difference is <clears throat> because uh, NFTs, that ticket has a life beyond the project. And I do see this uh, UKEDS community as being a long-term project that does go beyond this album. And if it was just a ticket for this one isolated experience, I might have done it in a different way. I might have done it in a more conventional way. But what I'd like to see is that this album is the beginning of a community that has a life beyond this album possibly beyond the members of the community possibly this community has a life beyond me uh and what you can do with an nft is that um after the project is over unlike that super bowl ticket which you know you might keep it in a little drawer or something but it's not going to get you into the next super bowl mm-hmm. you know that's that ticket is over once the event is over the thing with nfts is that they're long-term and now anybody who holds a uked um uh token uh, after the album is, is out, they might get discounts on future uh, events in person. They might get discounts on workshops, they might get VIP access at festivals. They might get uh, an event that's dedicated um, specifically to you They might there might be a U-Kids festival. I'm not promising anything. They might get discounts on um, uh, merchandise or access to exclusive merchandise. We might get the band back together to do a single. Uh, there's lots of songs that I've written that have never been recorded and I'd love to get the band back together and and To do a, a single now and again a Christmas song or an Earth Day song or whatever What I'm saying is this ticket is not just good for this Super Bowl It's good for who knows how many other things down the road And you know what when I decide that I'm moving on to another instrument, you know I'm taking up the ocarina and I'm leaving my ukulele behind maybe I'll sell my membership and I can do that and maybe the album you kids Got some good press, and, and maybe people think it's a good album, and guess what? I might even be able to sell that head for more than I paid for it. Um, all of these things are possible beyond the life of this of, of this album. I can see people gifting them to their kids, or or you know, um, giving them to people they care for who uh, who want to be part of this community. You know, it becomes a portable. Um, I don't know, a little a little coin. It's like a little treasure that you might pass on to somebody. That's very different than a Kickstarter.
0: Yeah, that is different. That is different, and it goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about um, giving the album a, a life of its own. So once you put it out there, hopefully it'll continue to be like a living thing.
1: Mm-hmm. That'd be the idea. Mm-hmm. And if if nothing else, you've got a whole community of people who know the songs. Uh, the minute that album comes out, they are inside the music. They they have been there all along. They've followed the journey. They've been part of the journey. And of course, they're going to go out there and, and tell people about it. You've got a, a, a built-in um, fan base for the album already um, and people who really believe in it and who want to see it succeed. So you know, everybody benefits when you grow a community around a piece of art like this.
0: So when is this uh, kicking off and when is the album coming out?
1: It's already kicked off. So um, June 1st was the launch of the UKEDS. Um, each one is a unique piece of art. It's a portrait of the ukulele. They're, they're colorful, they're a little bit silly, they're whimsical. And I created 1,879 of these uk heads. And they went on sale June 1st. We've sold a bunch. There's still some available. And uh, the album uh, will probably come out in about a year.
0: Great! Oh, that reminds me. So you actually drew? Did you personally design those ukuleles? Did you paint them,
1: or did? Yep, I I designed them and I drew them myself. Wow! Uh, I've always been a closet, you know, visual artist. I did and... not realize that. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're really cool. Thanks. I I thought um, it would be more meaningful if 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 I did them myself. So so I did.
0: Well, the thing is, I, I, maybe it goes back to what I was saying before about how when I started, there were just two people doing it, me and one of the ukulele mics was doing it. And um, now, like when I went to Nam last year or the year before lockdown, I met this girl who was, I think, like 25, 24 maybe. And she said, oh, I used to watch you when I was a kid. And that made me want to do it. And now she's doing it. you know. So I've, I feel like I've sort of, you know, inspired my own replacements who are, you know younger prettier better singers and players than me and they're you know rightly doing what i'm doing and doing it better and doing it in new and exciting ways but it's also cutting into my sort of you know audience and stuff and that's how it should be i suppose but um,
1: well i don't know about how it should be but it's certainly how it is i mean uh, yeah I, i i i'm i'm always fascinated by um you know people's career paths Partly because it's uh, it's so much easier to give people advice than it is to take your own advice. So you know, my wife Anne and I play this game when we're out at a at a gig or at a, at a festival, and we'll we'll look at an artist and, we'll, and then we'll look at each other and say, "What would you do if you were their manager?" Mm. <laughs> you know, you're always dreaming of like, you know, what would you know, what would go well? How would they get to the next level? You know, what should they do to further their goals and whatever? Because it's so much easier to look at other people. Than it is to you know, uh, if we spent half of the time uh, thinking about our own careers, we'd probably be a lot further ahead. But it's so much fun to think of how other people um, might grow and evolve, and and, you know. So I can't help but think, like, oh boy, if I was John, you know, what would I be doing? Well, I have to turn my brain off. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I'd love to know. I don't have to go into it now, but uh, if you sort of think, oh, you should be doing this or this, but I actually do have. Uh, shall I say this? Well, whatever, I can cut it out. if I don't can want to. Out. But I one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because like I've been talking into a camera for ten years mm. and not really seeing any other human beings, you know. Right. So I'm firstly I'm kind of a bit tired of being on camera because every time you have to set up lights, you have to oh, make sure you've you shaved, ironed a shirt, whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm just fed up with it, you know. And likewise, like I said, I'm not talking to people. I'm just gonna kind of feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. And I want to do something where, firstly, I don't have to worry so much about how I look or what I'm wearing or, you know, if I put on weight or whatever. (laughs) And uh, secondly, I want to like meet people and talk to people and, um, you know, just see what other people think. Because not many people do what we do. So it's cool to sort of um, chat to other people who are doing it and Mm. see, and no, no two people have the same experience of being ukulele players or ukulele teachers or whatever. So it's just great to hear hear what other people are up to. Mm
1: -hmm. No, I agree. And and I've always felt, you know, I started my podcast a couple years ago um, and I feel the same way. You know, I think audio is just my medium. You know, they used to say, you know, you've got a face for radio. (laughs) Uh, And now it's like, you've got a face for podcasting. Yeah. (laughs) And that's how I feel about like, man, I I just sit there in my my pajamas and, and do my podcast. Not that I always do that. But, you know, I could. And, uh, and I just have that freedom of being alone with the audio. Um, now, I don't do a lot of interviews. I'm mostly teaching to the microphone, which is a, a different thing again. But I, I love the podcasting medium. And not only that, I'm a big podcast listener. Um, I have my little nerdy uh, you know, Bluetooth earpiece, mm-hmm. and I do the dishes and listen to podcasts. That's my me time, you know. When my son's in bed, uh, I go down the kitchen, and I clean up, and I just listen to podcasts. And I, I love it you know and and so that's what made me want to start one of my own because i thought this has brought me so much joy i'm i'm, I'm going to get in there
0: the funny thing is me and my wife actually have fights over who is going to do the dishes because we want to <laughs> listen to our headphones you know <laughs> so i'm like oh i can't believe you did the dishes i was going to do that yeah. and listen to my uh, how my could show you? yeah yeah <laughs> that's so funny did you find um lockdown was how did that change stuff for you
1: well i'm kind of a uh, a, a creature of lockdown I have to say <laughs> like I'm a crawl into my hole you know crawl, crawl under the covers and, and get cracking on some creative projects my happy place really is the studio mm-hmm. I love it there um, it's it's my workplace it's my creative place it's my man cave you know it's my sanctuary you know for, for me the studio is um, such an important place in, in my in my life that you know, when they said we're locking down everything and and everybody has to spend two years in their studio, I was like, hey, nice, yeah, I'm already I can there, do that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, I have I've written so much music, I've produced so much educational content, I've you know developed a lot as a musician, as, as a writer, and as a teacher over that time. You know, I do miss seeing people. I don't get me wrong. Like I, we're here at the Nam Show and and reconnecting. With friends and meet, meeting new people is really fun. I'm not going to say that it's not fun, but um, I definitely am predisposed to a kind of lockdown lifestyle myself. Me
0: too. But um, what about your kids and and uh, family? Weren't they sort of around all the time? Do they get in the way at all? Or?
1: Not really. You know, I mean, there's only three of us my mm-hmm. wife and me and my son, and we love to be around each other. So, we, and besides, we have, which I highly recommend for artists if you can swing it, we moved to the country <laughs> and we have two buildings one uh-huh. where we live and one where we make the noise. So, it, it's worked out really well. I, it's a converted garage. We still can park one car in the side, but I, you know, I, years ago I raised the floor and insulated it and, and created a studio uh sort of it's it's like a half garage and then if you see a lot of my youtube videos where i'm just talking to the camera that's where i'm sitting and then above there's a second floor um which we just created a a, an open multi-purpose space we can have a string quartet there we recorded we've recorded albums there and that whole structure is you know like a 20 second walk from the house and it's bliss yeah
0: that does sound incredible actually yeah there's not much danger of that happening in england i don't think having a second building and a home studio or anything but one day who knows you know
1: yeah i mean that's i was visiting my my friend paul hemmings wonderful jazz ukulele player from new york city and i was visiting him um, before the pandemic and and we were sort of he's got a young family and you know i had my son there and we were complaining a little bit about this and that and the other thing and oh i don't have enough time to record i don't have enough time to you know uh, write songs and and i said "You you know every time i I go out to my studio and, 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 and he said, let me just stop you there. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I just lost all sense of sympathy for you right. when you started the sentence with every time I go out to my studio, I dot, dot, dot. He said, forget about it. You, you're fine. He said, uh, you've got all the elbow room you need. Yeah. Talking of
0: um, songwriting, just to change the subject a little yeah. bit. But um, I heard an interview with you, um, I guess it was on someone's podcast, actually, where you were talking about it. And you made it sound like a really uh, painful process. <laughs> you said it was sort of like carving something out of rock. And I, I was wondering, is, that, um, is it painful for you? And is that why it's been so long since your last sort of big project?
1: Um, that's a great question. I think it depends on the day. Maybe whatever the interview that was just kind of hit me on a day where I wasn't feeling it. Um, I do think songwriting uh, is... For me, it's a natural thing i I feel I feel like I want to write songs. I feel like I have songs in me that I want to get out. Sometimes I hit a, a, a just a stalemate with a, a certain song, and that's I think those are the painful moments um, where you know, <laughs> I might have said something like that. Um, I feel often it's the lyrics that trip me up. Uh, I feel that I'm very picky about lyrics and I know when I, I get it right for me. I mean, I know when I get a lyric that I can deliver authentically, but I don't necessarily know where, where they are. So I don't necessarily know where to go to get them. So I feel like a bit more like on the music side, I, I'm, I'm a bit more of a laser beam, you know, I, I know where to go. I know what direction to point and I just, you know, I go until I get it. With lyrics, I feel a little bit more like a fisherman, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of putting my line in the water all the time and just often coming up, you know, empty handed. I, 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 I know when I have one, you know, when I pull up a big fish, I know it and I, I bag it and that's the lyric, you know, and, and, and I feel really good about it. But I, I don't feel quite as much, uh, uh, you know, the, the, I don't feel that it's up to me quite as much when it mm-hmm. comes to the lyrics.
0: So it's not just like a sort of Paul McCartney, you pluck it out of the air and it's there.
1: Well, it's funny. You know, I just listened to a whole series of podcasts on BBC with with Paul McCartney talking about about his songwriting process. Um, And I could relate to a lot of what he was saying. Um, You know, one of the, obviously, you know, one of the most famous songs of all time, yesterday, he famously dreamt the melody and then for many weeks had placeholder lyrics, Talking about scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs, yes, right? that's it. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I can really relate to that because I think um, it's a it's a process that I've used a lot, where you have a melody, or you have a groove, or you have some chord progression, and it used to be in the in 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 the old days. You know, when I first started songwriting. I often would start from the lyric and I would carry around a notebook and I would listen to conversations over the wall or through a door and and pick up little things that I loved or or um, little observations as I would tra- travel and inspirations and i and I would build those out into almost poetry and then try to set them to music and I really enjoyed that process um, but around the time of my last album it was sort of mid you know, 2010s I guess. <laughs> Um I started to have this feeling that I wanted to do two things with my songwriting. One was rock harder. I just had this feeling like I just wanted to, I just wanted a bigger sound. I wanted to go for it. I, I really love loud music and <laughs> I was just in the mood for that. Um, I still feel that way. And the second thing was I wanted to make less sense. I was finding that when I started with the lyric, the song would often be a little too easy to follow, um, a little too much like a instruction manual. Well, th- this happens, and and then this happens, and and then after that, given those two things, this happens. You know, <laughs> like I, I felt like the songs were happening a little bit too much in real time. Mm. The narratives were a little bit too much in real time, and I I'm a big fan of sort of abstract art and and postmodern art, and and, and I wanted to. Uh, do more work that was, um, it was a little more mosaic in its inspiration you know it, not so logical in the narrative and so i really started to flip it around and, and start with music first you know paul simon is a great songwriting hero of mine uh, paul mccartney as well and and they both um have said that this is the way they work most of the time where you get a melody or you get a chord progression and then you just literally start <laughs> mumbling you know, and, and it's kind of like the mystery of the mumble. Yeah. You just start, blah, 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 just gibberish. Sometimes it's words, sometimes it's not words. Sometimes it's just vowel sounds. <laughs> like, you just start your mouth moving and I record all of it. So I'll sit there and, and play the track that I've made and I just start mumbling and get vowels where I like them. And it's very much, a you know, on the, there's a new word that I learned the other day, mouthfeel. Okay. (laughs) On the side of these uh, uh, milk cartons now, like soy milk or or, uh, oat milk or whatever, they they advertise it saying, great mouthfeel. I'm thinking, that's kind of, it sounds kind of gross. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But what they're saying is, you know, it it doesn't feel gritty or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very smooth and, you know, mouthfeel. Well, I can relate to that because in songwriting, some words just have good mouthfeel. You know, and some lines of words just have a mouth feel, the way that the vowels come out and the w- the rhythm that the you know, that the sounds line up, sometimes you just want to sing a line because of the mouth feel. And so I think when you start with that, and then you listen back and you go, "What am I hinting at? What, what words would fit into place there? And then given that, what meaning would I sort of extrapolate from that? The, the, the meaning, ends up being the very last thing to come and i've found as backwards as that sounds i've just really enjoyed that process and it's allowed me to make less sense in a way that i feel uh, really good about
0: yeah that's really that's a fascinating answer thank you i mean Do you know of course you know rem but they did something similar i think they would sort of make like the band would make like a, a backing track for michael stipe and then he would just drive around in his car listening to it and like right. just yelling as he's driving or singing i mean yes. until the sort of tunes and, and melodies were formed yeah and then i guess the lyrics would come after that as well or as part of that maybe
1: well and i think it's especially true for a pop band like rem or or for um for a project like you kids because i had to think i want people to sing these lyrics with me i want people to sing this at the top of their lungs so the meaning and by the way <laughs> you know We are meaning creation animals, you know, that's what we do. If you give somebody a a list of four words, they are going to create meaning. They could be absolutely random words, but they will create mental pictures, they will create connecting narratives between those four words. It's what we're bred to do. We don't need help creating meaning from basically nothing. It's how we make sense of the world. So I think sometimes when a songwriter spends a little too much time thinking about, well, I really want people to understand what I mean with this, uh, y- y- you really run the risk of over kneading the dough. You know, mm-hmm. Give people the chance to make those connections. Um, what what might be more important if you want people to participate, like on You Kids, is that you have the right vowels in the right places so that people can just let her rip and 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 sing at the top of their lungs Uh, they'll get the meaning later but i I wanted people to feel like they were invited to sing and that has a lot to do with how the, the 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 lyrics eventually took shape
0: yeah i think personally i think about stuff a bit differently to most people like like i've got music songs that i've heard thousands of times since i was a little kid and i would say they're like my favorite songs of all time and yet I probably don't know the words, half the words probably, because <laughs> I just do not listen to the words. When I'm listening to music. I listen to it sort of as a whole, mm. or I'll pick out like a bass line or a drum fill or something that grabs me in it. And they'll be like, "You've this is like your favorite song. I'm like, yeah, but I don't know what it's about or what the words are or anything. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I could sort of, yeah, maybe look at it a bit differently. Mm. Um, I've given up. Uh, Why well, I say given up, yeah, I just cannot write lyrics, I think. I cannot do it. Really? And I think I'm just going to have to accept that. Yeah, are, I find are you sure? it. I feel like you're going to do like some sort of Jedi mind trick or something. Like, actually, yeah, all you have to do is. But um, yeah, I think I'm sure. Uh-huh. Like, I, I sit down to write a song, and then I'll come up with you know music and melody, and I'll be like, well, I'll just add a keyboard part and a synth part and a bass part and a something else part and a yeah. bassoon or whatever. And uh, I'm like, oh, I haven't really got the time now for lyrics. So, uh, <laughs> but I do have
1: a great bassoon part. Exactly. Like, yeah. 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 That's so something.
0: It's something. Yeah. But I think that's kind of. I think I just have to accept that's what I want to do maybe like I like making little jingles or little bits of music that can go in behind something.
1: Well, I think one of the really important questions is do you have to? Yeah. Right? I exactly. mean I think there's sometimes there's a, this uh this this sort of almost like your conscience is saying, you know, you should write songs. You mm-hmm. it's like, well, maybe I don't want to. Yeah, but there's other people out there writing songs. You better get some before they get. It's like well, maybe I don't want to write songs, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, uh, nobody has an obligation to write songs. You know, nobody has an obligation to write lyrics. But if you do have that feeling in your chest, you know, and you wake up, and that feeling is just, I have to get this out. Like, I, you know, um, sometimes my wife knows. My wife's also a wonderful songwriter. Uh, she just finished another a, a solo album of her own. Um, we understand each other, so that's really nice. We have two songwriters in the house, uh, but there will be times when I have to excuse myself. It doesn't happen that often, and I, you know, I, I, I try to be there, you know, for, for my wife and my son all the time. But there are times when I, I cannot function, uh, and I'm, I'm no good to anybody because there's some lyric banging around in my head. There's some musical idea banging around in my head, and I just have to go out to the studio. I said, "Look, it's." Maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, I just need to go and get this out, mm-hmm. and then I'll be a functioning human being right. again. Yeah. You know? and, and they understand mm-hmm. that, and I think that's really important. Now, if you don't have that, that sort of, I don't know, that little alien child in you that's trying to get out, if it's not pushing its way out and forcing its way into the world, then you don't have to force it you, yeah you, you don't have to pretend that it's there see the
0: thing is i think i do have that alien but it, he's just not giving me lyrics it's just like a little riff <laughs> more, or more something bassoon. yeah it's ex- more presumed right yeah. yeah
1: yeah well i mean that's fine too you know? Yeah. Uh, but whatever it is that is crying to get out that's what you need to do and, and nothing else
0: Do you far prefer teaching to a class of people or individually? Uh, which do you sort of prefer?
1: Oh, well, if you'd asked me that when I was 15, when I wrote that you know, uh, guitar method on loose-leaf paper with you know pen, I would have said one-on-one mm-hmm. because uh, it's more controlled. And it's just there's only one of me and there's only one of them. So like, hey, at least it's even. Uh, you know, what can possibly go wrong? If you ask me now, there's absolutely no question in my mind that teaching a class is more powerful. It's more fun, and you can get a lot more done in terms of meaningful music making. Um, but I think that I had to grow into that. I think that it, you know it, it takes more confidence to to really manage the classroom. But if you can, and once you get comfortable with it, the possibilities are just uh, endless.
0: And uh, what are your thoughts about online teaching? Um, And I I guess I don't mean like classes and things like your like your courses. Mm. Uh, I mean stuff like I suppose specifically YouTube and also more about like the new like TikTok and and Instagram Reels and things like that. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because my the reason I'm asking you is I kind of thought, can you really learn like a a quadruplet strum in a 15 second video? Mm. And uh, I was questioning the educational value of those things. But I wondered if you had any thoughts of that sort of thing.
1: I, I feel the same way. I, I've dabbled, I haven't posted anything on TikTok. Um, I have yet to see the real educational value of, of the platform. I, I can see the entertainment value and I can see the, the value to musicians for trying to break new songs. But um, in terms of the educational value, I, I want to be persuaded, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, I think duets is, is got a ton of potential for education, but again, I haven't. I haven't seen it done in a way that's got me excited. Um, When it comes to YouTube, which I do have a little more experience with, um, my feeling about YouTube has always been that there's only two things on YouTube that actually work. There's wow and how. So it's either gotta be, wow, I've never seen that before, and I have to share this with my friends, my mind is blown. Or it's gotta be how to unclog my drain or or how to play a, 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 a double strum or something, and if you can combine both, <laughs> if you have a, a video that's wow and how together, well, you know that's a winner. But if if it doesn't fall into one of those categories, it's really just not going to go anywhere. It's got to be wow, or how, or both, uh, and so that limits the uh, what I would say the spectrum of what you can do on YouTube and expect to have an audience for it's very different than if you're in the classroom you don't always have to be wowing everybody in the classroom uh you don't even have to be howing everybody in the classroom (laughs) there's a culture to the classroom that, that has a life unto itself YouTube um you know I don't necessarily fault YouTube for it I mean YouTube is just what what it is I mean it is what it is uh, but it it is severely limited in the sense that I believe there's only really those two tracks that you can hope to you know uh, succeed in. A
0: huge, huge, huge thanks to James for being so generous with his time and really going in depth into some great areas of discussion. And thanks, James, for being the first ever guest on this podcast, Ukulele Tales. As mentioned, his next album, Ukeheads, is being produced right now, and you can help fund it and literally be a part of it by heading to ukeheads.com and buying your own unique Ukehead NFT designed by James himself. Uh, you can also follow James on Twitter and Facebook at James Hill Musique, that's music with a Q, and all of his educational content is courses from Complete Beginner advanced jazz even extreme ukulele uh, as well as some invaluable content for ukulele teachers can all be found at uketropolis.com again thanks so much for checking out this first episode of ukulele tales be sure to subscribe give it a good review a thumbs up and tell all your uke playing buddies and maybe even consider signing up to patreon.com slash if you want to help support the venture and get some awesome extra content as well I'll be back again next week with another great interview for you. But until next time, I love you all and I wish you the best.